welcome to Outside the Music Box. I'm Chloe Prendergast. And I'm Emma Williams. We're so glad you've joined us today. We're both violinists based in the Netherlands and have created this podcast in our search to find fun new ways to share and talk about music we love. Today, we have a special bonus episode, a Christmas special, if you will. That seems to be a thing people do, so here we are. As we come to the end of 2020, we want to start by thanking all of you for being with us on this podcasting adventure so far. We'll answer some listener questions soon, but we wanted to start with a bit of a recap of this year. So we first came up with the idea of this podcast sometime in April, back when we were completely stuck with all of our work cancelled due to the pandemic. We were feeling pretty bored and uninspired um, and wanted to find a way to stay connected and keep the music alive. We didn't want you to have to stare at a screen for any longer than you already have to these days. Plus, we wanted to do things in our pyjamas, and we wanted an excuse to hang out with our friends across the world and chat about music we love. So, we created a podcast. Never thought we'd be podcasters, but hey, it's 2020. Anything can happen. We even now jump into the freezing North Sea in the middle of winter, so we're trying all sorts of things we never thought we'd do. (laughs) Anyway, so far we've made 18 episodes since May this year. We started by publishing once a week because we could and we had all of the time. (laughs) Then we thankfully started working again and had to figure out how to keep podcasting while also doing our lives as musicians. We're still working on this part. So now we publish whenever we can. Even if you haven't heard from us in a while, we are still constantly thinking about ideas and working on episodes. We are musicians bringing you a podcast and not podcasters fitting in some music on the side. And for us, that means that when we're off performing, it's actually helping us become better podcasters for you. It helps us be inspired, meet new people to interview, create music for us to include in the episodes, and we learn more things, which helps us expand our knowledge of music, and that helps us share it with you. And there's actually a lot that goes into making this podcast. Um, We get to know the pieces that our guests bring in before and after the interview. We do historical background research. We find scores and recordings. We even find dramatic readings of letters written by dead composers sometimes that Chloe likes to. um, (laughs) She really likes uh, reading those out for you. Um, We deal with a lot of technical glitches because everything's over the internet. We put all the components together of the episode and we edit all the audio levels, which keeps us learning more about GarageBand and Audacity. And we try and share it with the world, which is something that we're always trying to get better at. So if you can help us share it, that is great. (laughs) And hopefully the end result is something that feels like you're out for drinks with musicians after a concert. But instead of having to Google everything yourself on the way home and trying to figure out which bits the musicians were referring to, we do that all for you. So you can just sit back and enjoy. Okay, everyone, quick side note. We actually recorded this whole episode a couple of weeks ago and had it all ready to go. Uh, But then PayPal screwed us over and shut down our account and we thought we'd have it fixed by now. But again, it's 2020, so no. (laughs) We wanted to publish this episode before the holidays, though, and seeing as it looks like we won't be able to fix the PayPal issue before then, we decided to just go ahead and publish anyway with this little insert explaining the situation. So you're about to hear us explaining how to send money to us via PayPal. Don't do that right now. However, we would still love for you to donate, and especially if you want to before the end of this year. So what we think will work best is if you email us at concerts.musicbox at gmail.com, then we will reply to you ASAP with donating options that best suit your country. We have Venmo for the States, Tiki for Europe, and an Australian transfer option as well, so it all should be fine. Um, And thanks so much for bearing with us, and we'll figure this out very soon for you. So now back to the pod. 
So yeah, it takes a lot of time, and we love it. But we also have to pay our rent and eat and buy violin strings. <laughs> so when you donate, it helps a whole bunch. We try not to talk about the pandemic too much because we're tired of it and would rather talk about music. But the reality is that our livelihoods have been affected by this whole thing. So by donating to this podcast, you're doing your part to support the arts. Go you! Keep it up! Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> and then when you can, go see concerts and support those musicians in real life. Uh, so for donations, it seems so far like PayPal is the best, and you can find our PayPal link at paypal.me slash musicboxconcerts, which is linked in the show notes. But if for some reason PayPal doesn't work for you, definitely let us know, and we'll be happy to find a different solution. Your donations have already helped so much. Joanna, our friendly helper audio magic woman, <laughs> who we love to call Jojo. <laughs> we should find a better title for her. Yeah. Magic Jojo. Magic Jojo. Yes. Anyway, she was able to purchase a new and very much needed viola da gamba string just before a concert with her last portion of the donations. So look, go you, you're literally helping create music. Yay! Yay! Alrighty, let's have a look at some of the questions people have sent in. Okay, so we're going to start with a question uh, from Roy, who we actually already emailed him back about the answer to this question because we had to send him a bit of actual, like, score and manuscript. But um, he had a question about the Corelli baseline and where to find it in the Bach Art of Fugue from Tinica Stainbrink's episode. Uh, so we sent the score to him. But in case anyone else is curious, it, this part takes place in Contrapunctus number 18, bar 162 of the Art of Fugue. Uh, and we'll play both of those excerpts again now for you to hear. First up, here's that Corelli baseline. Here's the bit in the Art of Fugue. This, we've got two questions that are kind of similar, so we're going to group them together. Um, we've got one from Kathleen and one from Dean. So um, this one from Kathleen is a follow-up to a question we were answering last listener question episode um, about strings. I think it was about was it? strings and how we use gut strings or something like that. Oh, yeah. I don't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, can you go more in-depth about how a violin actually works? Very good question. Um, because, you know, we don't even really know. But it is to do with physics. Um, <laughs> so basically, a violin is a wooden box that creates resonance. So we have a bow in our right hand that is made out of horsetail hair and wood. 
which we then put rosin, so as in the sap from a tree, um, onto the hair of the bow, and that creates friction when we then put the bow on the string and pull it across the string. And then this friction makes the string vibrate, and then that makes the wooden box resonate, and that creates the music. Hopefully that makes sense. And then the next question from Dean is, how many different instruments are there within the violin slash strings family? How have they developed? Why? And are there particular ones employed in Baroque music only? Cool. So the violin family as we know it is kind of from 16th century Italy. Um, so there's kind of three or four instruments in the family. So there's the violin that we play, viola, which is slightly bigger than a violin, cello, also slightly bigger, and then double bass, which is really big. And they go down in uh, pitch. Yeah, so the violin is the highest in terms of pitch, and then it gets lower and lower. And I guess that then brings us to what is more employed in Baroque music, and that would be more the viola da gamba family. Um, that was like totally in vogue in the Baroque period. So and around, earlier. Yeah, and earlier, so yeah. 17th, 18th centuries. But then it kind of went out of fashion from sort of later on in the 18th century, and then only really had a comeback within the last like 50 years yeah. when people started sort of discovering all this old music and old instruments again. So yeah, hopefully that answers that question. Yeah, it's another, uh, like those are the other string family. They're, the viola da gamba and the violin family are not actually the same family, but they are sort of separate. Yeah, they use strings. And also a piano uses strings, but it's also kind of in the percussion family because you hit the strings. Yeah. by hitting the keys. Same with a harpsichord. And a harpsichord, yeah. Which is plucked instead of hit. Yep. And then harps and guitars also are within the, you know, the oh, broader true. string family because they use strings mm -hmm. that you, you pluck. Um, but yeah, they're not in the violin family. Okay, so our next question comes from Joellen. She says, how or do you use imagery in the preparation or performance of a piece? Do images, memories come up for you as you play? Um, and this is sort of also related to a question that Lindsay sent. Um, and he said, your new venture sounds great and getting into the skin of a musician, be it the performer or composer, is fascinating. Uh, so the state of mind when performing, what goes on up there? Perhaps nothing is the goal? <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, in preparation for concerts, while we're rehearsing, we do use imagery often, um, like of either emotions or scenarios. Like we'll say like, a flower field on a summer morning with a bit of dew on the grass and a slight breeze in the air um, will be like the scenario for a piece that we've decided. <laughs> Basically, oh. if it's as, like, as detailed as possible. Yeah. That's good. And we, it could also just be like a color. Yeah. Like, this bit is red and fiery, or, you know, blue and tranquil. Um, or it could be some sort of emotion, and then we create images around that emotion. Mm -hmm. um, and then we often, like, draw or write um, reminders on our scores that give us little kind of 
quick reminders of those images when we're playing the pieces. Yep. So we'll either put a word or we'll like draw a sun <laughs> or a love heart <laughs> above the music and that kind of helps us remember like quickly in the moment. Yeah. I was um with my quartet, we were playing a piece that we decided part of it was little bunnies hopping around. And so then <laughs> the other violinist in my quartet, Anna, oh, who was on this podcast in episode three, uh, she drew little bunnies in all of our parts so that when we got to that part, we would all see our little bunnies. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Musicians are super cool. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's while we're rehearsing, we'll talk about that and those sort of help trigger our brains. Um, but while we're performing, hopefully our state of mind is in what we call flow. We sort of talked about it last listener question episode, um, that you want to achieve like a gentle and versatile focus that's sort of energized, but also um, relaxed. Yeah. And we also talked about this in Rachel Beasley's episode, um, and she does heaps of work on flow. And we'll put some links in the show notes to that. Um, she's got lots of great resources uh, for anyone. It's really useful for people in the creative and performing arts, but actually learning about getting into a state of flow is just great for anyone that wants to be productive or creative in any field. So definitely recommend checking that out. Alrighty, next is from Rosie and she says, have you and Chloe played Baroque music with a dance performance? Does it change the way it's presented? Yes, it does. And it's very fun. And yes, um, we've both uh, played yeah. Baroque music with dance performances yep. in different, have we ever done that together? I don't know if we've done it together, but yeah, we've so. done done different projects, little like festival things. Often in like summer festivals when there are like musicians and dancers and singers and everything together, that's usually a good place for that to happen because they're all in the one place. Um, and also we both did a Baroque dance course a couple of summers ago in Sweden, which was really fun. And we learned a lot about Baroque dance true. and we did ourselves and <laughs> did not make fools of ourselves at all. <laughs> it was very fun. It was very fun. Um, also, I did a concert with this, uh, in Denver, Colorado, actually, with a really cool dance company called Wonderbound that, um, sort of contemporary dance company and based on the story of Marie Antoinette with Baroque music. And that was really cool also. Cool. Yeah. yeah, that's nice. Yeah, it's really cool playing with dancers or sort of seeing dancers when you're playing or trying to dance yourself because it really gives you that like physical rhythmic representation of the music and helps you kind of understand the, the impetus and the characters of the music as well. Yeah. And so any visual representation of music is always interesting. Yeah. 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 Super cool. Okay, cool. Uh, next, Andrew wants to know, what is your favorite or least favorite key in which to play? Or is it not an issue? Um, it definitely is an issue. We yes. will start with that. Yeah. Yes. And we will also <laughs> start by defining what a key is. 
Um, so we've talked about scales before, um, and the key is which scale you're using. So it kind of establishes the home base and is kind of the language of the music. Um, so it can be generally major, which often is associated with happy things, or minor, which can be associated with sad music, but that, that's not exclusive. Um, each key sort of has its own feeling or character. And actually a lot of composers have been writing about this for a long time. Um, and we actually have some fun examples of that here. Um, and we have like a table, which we will link to in the show notes, of all the different keys and four different composers and what they said about them. Yeah. All in the 18th century? Yeah. Just. Just barely. <laughs> yeah. um, do you want to do C major and I'll do E minor? Sure. Okay, cool. So C major, for example, that doesn't have any sharps or flats. It's just like the home, the homest of home keys. <laughs> if you look at a piano keyboard, mm. it's all of the white keys and none of the black keys. Yeah. So uh, Charpentier says that C major is gay and martial. Matheson in 1713 says uh, it's rude and impudent character uh, suited to rejoicing, which is a little bit contradicting, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> Rameau in tw 1722 says um, it fits the songs of mirth and rejoicing. And then Schubert in 1787 says it's a quiet and pure key, innocent, simplicity, naivety, and baby talk. <laughs> so go figure. Yeah. And now for E minor, just because we thought uh, it had some fun descriptions from these old uh, composer guys. So Charpentier says that E minor is effeminate, amorous, and plaintive. Matheson says hardly joyful because it is normally very pensive, profound, grieved, and sad, but still hope for consolation. So it's not like the saddest of the keys. <laughs> um, Rameau says sweetness and tenderness. And then Schubert says, naive, womanly, innocent declaration of love, lament without murmuring, sighs accompanied by few tears. This key speaks of impending hope of the purest happiness calling forth in C major. One could compare it with a girl dressed in white, with a rose-red bow on her bosom. One withdraws from this tone with inexpressible grace again to the fundamental C major where heart and ear find the most perfect satisfaction. Schubert. I mean, what a character. All of his descriptions of the keys are just so long. Like, everyone else is like, two examples, two words, and then Schubert's like, here is an essay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they're very fun. Uh, I highly suggest checking those out. Yeah. Um, oh, for uh, our favorites, so different keys resonate differently on different instruments. So for instance, on a violin, A major and D major are very open and resonant and fun to play in because they utilize all these open strings. So there's like a lot of ringing. Because of physics. Because of physics, yes. Yes. And I guess for our favorite and least favorites, yeah, I mean, those really resonant keys I really like playing in. Um, I really hate F sharp major just because it has so many sharps and it means that you're fingers have to be in like weird positions on the violin and it's just really hard to get in tune mm -hmm. so yuck true also yes very yuck i think my least favorite is maybe like e flat minor if i can't use any open strings also playing c flats anything that has me playing c flats or those darned c flats <laughs> just not into it <laughs> anyway um yeah so anything that's like really hard to uh play and doesn't have as much resonance on the instrument. Yeah. 
But then you can also like use that difficulty and challenge to then create a certain character in the music, which is kind mm-hmm. of interesting. So like they are a least favorite, but they can be very useful because it can then create this kind of like anguish and t- torment in the music if you want it. So yeah. yeah, yeah, the key really does go with the piece, and yeah. the key the key that the piece is written in informs something about the character of the piece. Yeah. next one is from Janica. He says, how do you look at a 250-year-old score and understand the composer's intent? Does it matter or should you just play it how you want? That is a big question and it's basically what we spend all of our time thinking about, so thanks. (laughs) We think it matters. We do think it matters, but we also know that we'll never know what the composer's intent was. So you kind of have to like go really deep into it, but then also take a step back and just do what feels right. Yes. So both it matters and also you should just play it how you want, we think. Both yeah. of those are true. Yeah. So we, yeah, like anytime we play anything, we do a lot of background research into it. So we look at like what was going on in the world and in the composer's life when they were composing it. Um, we look at kind of how people were playing music in general at that time. Like there's lots of um, like instruction manuals that we can look at that are, you know, hundreds of years old that we can study. Um, and we can... Yeah, else? if any composers have written things about their own work that's we look at that for sure um and then also like we're always discovering new things and as people do more research people are finding new sources as well yeah so yeah it's constantly evolving yeah also we do a lot of researching and thinking about it and then also deciding like what sounds good to us because we have to play in a way that we feel is convincing and we can't play something convincingly if we don't believe it ourselves yeah but thanks for the question. It's a really good question. It's a and good question. What we think about all the time. Yes. Next, I have a question from Chelsea. She wants to know, how do people putting together groups know who is good? Are there interviews, auditions? What do those look like? How do you know where you should go to join a group? Are you in multiple groups at once? Um, Yeah, it's a whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's very varied. Um, Yes. (laughs) Um, And yeah, it really just depends on the groups. So um, if you think of like a standard symphony orchestra, so there might be like uh, the symphony orchestra of your city or something like that, um, they tend to do formal auditions, formal auditions yeah. for like actual positions in the orchestras um, that you'll be in for a long time um, or even just a sub with them. You also have to go through these quite long and rigorous audition processes. So you'll do an audition where they'll require kind of a set of both solo pieces and excerpts of standard orchestral repertoire. 
then sometimes there's some sight reading, so like playing a piece that you've never seen before in the moment, um, which is always very scary, <laughs> um, or playing chamber music with people you don't know from that group. Um, like usually these are in multiple rounds also, so yeah. there will be a first round which is often behind a screen so that the audition panel can't see who you are. It's supposed to remove bias. Yeah, um, doesn't always work, but yep. <laughs> that's the idea of it and then if you pass the first round then you'll do the next round so chamber music obviously wouldn't be if you're behind a screen that yeah. usually comes in a later round so the farther in you get with the rounds like the closer you get to the position and then all, if all of that is successful then you have a trial period with the orchestra so you perform with them for a long time um maybe like a year or six months and then they will tell you whether you're hired for reels or not Yep, and then that's that. But for the freelance world, um, yeah, it's it's Kinda it really different. depends. Like it's either word of mouth. So if you've done a gig with someone and they like you, then they'll recommend you for another gig, or you could go and play for the leader of a group and then see if you guys fit. Um, yeah, maybe if they like hire you. you. Yeah, and then like other groups are formed by groups of friends who like playing together. Um, often this starts like when they're at a conservatory together studying and then it just keeps growing from there and that's actually how Music Box was created, so uh, there's an example. <laughs> um, and yes, you can definitely be in multiple groups at once. Um, basically it just depends on if you just want to have a job in one orchestra, if you like doing lots of different stuff, then you freelance, or if, yeah, if you need to like perform in lots of different groups to get enough money to live that's also another deciding factor which is like often true often you don't yeah. actually have the luxury of i mean is it a luxury some people would think it's a luxury to be in just one group yeah i actually really like I doing like lots playing, of things yeah i like playing in lots of groups so yeah you know it's just personal taste yeah totally um, yeah. and it's also i mean there's a lot of like you never knowing sometimes exactly why you've gotten a gig or not yeah, or why sure. you've been hired and then sometimes you get hired and play with a group once and then they don't ask you again and you have no idea why that is. Yeah. Or you fit with one group and then that works and yeah. you're like, great. <laughs> yeah. It's it like, is. it's as much about personalities fitting together as it is about actual like technical skill or anything. Um, because, mm -hmm. you know, it's basically just teamwork. You need to make sure that the team's going to work together. Um, and it is sort of a, like both sides that the group has to feel like you fit in and you have to also feel like you want to be in that group, it has to go both ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. question it is from Joellen and she wants to know if there are any dreamy venues that you have played in or want to play in yes <laughs> <laughs> um I think you've sung slash played in more like fancy yeah than I thankfully I grew up singing in some fancy children's choirs and so I spent a lot of time touring around the world and playing I mean singing in really cool places yeah. which I, I'm just I feel so lucky um like I sang in the Royal Albert Hall when I was 15 um I've also been playing in the Sydney Opera House <laughs> and singing there since I was like 11 
Also, nice. shout out to Melbourne. The Melbourne Recital Centre is like so amazing to play and sing in. And I'm not just biased. Uh, every person who comes and tours there from all around the world says it's great. So that's really fun. <laughs> um, yeah, and I sang Bach in the Leipzig Bach Church in Leipzig. That was great. Um, but yeah, we've both also played in like quite a lot of places in the Netherlands, which is really nice. We both yeah. like. Um, I really like um, in Utrecht, Tivoli Freidenberg has a bunch of halls and mm. the big one downstairs is really nice That's to play really nice. in. That, that feels good. Yeah. Um, the yeah. is also really nice to play in. in Amsterdam. The Museekgebouw I have like a complicated relationship with. Sometimes mm. it feels pretty good to play in there. And That's sometimes also in Amsterdam. That's, That's also in Amsterdam. Yeah. Sometimes it feels good to play there and sometimes it feels hard and weird to play there and I'm not sure why all the time. Sometimes the temperature in there or the humidity is weird and then that makes our strings go weird. It makes so it think, hard to hear each yeah, other. Yeah, and like whether there's a full house of audience or not, yeah. I think that changes things. Yeah. Basically, it's all about acoustics. Like, we were thinking about this and, um, you know, it's kind of fun to play in like some fancy hall, but actually if it doesn't have nice acoustics, it's not... Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Often it's like old, beautiful churches in the middle of nowhere that we really like playing in. Mm. Um, and we, we luckily get to play in a lot of beautiful yeah. old churches here, and that is always a joy. So also, fun. usually very cold so cold in the winter but worth it yeah worth it there's a beautiful old church in delft that i played in um a couple of years ago which is in like a bunch of vermeer paintings and that's fun like it's just fun to play in an old church that you're like oh i've seen the inside of this church in a painting yeah so and like if you're playing music from 200 years ago in a church that was built at the same time it's really fun to be like, oh, I'm doing what the, oh. those musicians from yeah. 200 years ago were doing. Yeah. And then, yeah, in terms of where we want to play, uh, I think we both have my biggest desire is to play in the Philharmonie, which is a new hall in Hamburg. Hamburg. Um, and I was supposed to play there this past March and then Corona. Corona. <laughs> <laughs> I was supposed to play, uh, yeah, Handel Messiah there. Yeah. That would have been great. So that was a concert that I was very sad was cancelled. Um, yeah. Someday. 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 We'll play It'll there. happen. Um, I would love to play in St. Mark's Venice mm. and do, there's like old music um, that used to be composed for that church that is sort of echoey because of the, the way the church is built. Um, and so musicians and singers stand in different parts of the church and it creates this really cool echoey type thing. So that would be great. Mm. Yeah. Um, and to get Harry Potter into every single episode, I've also sung in the Gloucester Cathedral, which is where part of Harry Potter was filmed. So. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I feel like it would be fun to play in Carnegie. Yeah, that'd be definitely. nice. Think center. Oh, I played in um, the Beijing Concert Hall, and that was mm, really fun. Yeah. That's cool, because it's like sort of you go in, and it's underground, and then like the hall itself is higher. There's this weird dome on it. It's very cool. Yeah. Nice. That was nice. Yeah. Um, There's lots of places in the world we'd love to play. Yeah. But often it's like little churches or big churches sort of in the middle of nowhere in the countryside or on the side of a mountain. That's always really fun. Mm. I feel like you've got a lot of history there. Yeah. Yeah. And really just anywhere where it feels nice to play yes. and you have audience. Like, I'm actually not that picky yeah. about venue. <laughs> I just want a live audience. Yeah.
well, that's it. We, we did really it. We hope you enjoyed all these questions um, and answers. We really enjoy doing these listener question episodes because it feels like we get to interact with you more and we're not just like putting things out into the abyss of the internet. <laughs> gets lost forever. <laughs> Um, so if anything we said in this episode brought up more questions for you or uh, made you think of something, you can definitely write to us. Please tell us about it. Also, uh, if you want to send us a voice message letting us know who you are and where you're listening from, and if you have a favorite piece of music or if you've had a favorite episode of this podcast so far, we would love to hear that and we will insert it into a future episode. Yeah. Receiving comments and questions and messages, voice memos from you is like a total joy and the reward for us. So please do keep doing that because yep. we love it. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll actually be taking a couple of weeks off for the holidays. So now is a perfect time for you to go back and catch up on any episodes you've missed um, or send this podcast to all your friends and family. And it's just an excellent free Christmas present that um, you could send to people great idea <laughs> uh next year we've got a lot of great people lined up so definitely stay tuned and we will be in your ears then but not in a creepy way <laughs> good one yep. happy holidays oh yeah we hope you have a very happy rest of 2020 happy and healthy yep and let's look forward to 2021 just getting better and better yes <laughs> see you next time outside the music box <laughs> oh my god <laughs>